Oh, yes, we are back with another Overnight Scape Central. I am Brett BQ River, your appreciator. This week's topic is cars, and uh, yes, we're running a little late, but it'll be worth your wait for sure. Um, we've got Frank Edward Nor and Chad Bowers so far, but you never know who might turn up or not, but I am certain we're going to have fun. When I think of cars, number one, I think of our old pal Jimbo and one of his favorite bands of all time, The Cars. Ben Orr, Rick Ocasek, uh, Gregory Hawk. There's one other guy. Uh, I, I used to know all the members, but Elliot Easton. I think that's The Cars, if I am not mistaken. So uh, whatever my flawed memory and brain dysfunctions may be, I at least was able to cover that. Welcome. Welcome Bring your ears, and of course, at the end of the program, you will have an opportunity to do a follow-up on anything you hear here, or your own thoughts on cars, or to address the topic for next week here on the Overnight Scape Central, because you are invited. Um, all the details will be included at the very end of this program. The automobile. This is something, uh, you know, we think of the horse before then. But how many people really had horses? I think more people rode trains. So cars may have replaced trains more than horses. I mean, they put the whole uh, leather industry kind of way down. But can you imagine by now if we all had horses, the amount, well, I guess we wouldn't be using leather. We would be using synthetics. But an entire industry tanning factories where I grew up in upstate New York. That was the main industry in my hometown of Monticello, New York for a number of years. And what this has to do with anything is anybody's guess, because I am a master at uh, just running off topic onto vaguely related distractions. So before I get us too far off the track, let's just get things rolling and hear what Shed Bowers has to say. Down the rabbit hole of slot cars. I researched a bit and purchased a Carrera 132-124 digital set. It came with two cars, a Red Bull car and uh, some other Porsche. I put it together... It was about five hundred dollars. The uh, the set did not have, you know, the extras you would need, right, to race, which is a lap timer, is another hundred. A um, you know, another car would be fifty or seventy, and you need a pit lane. That's about a hundred or so. But the real problem with it for me. And, and I did end up sending it back, was the scale. I had grown up with HO slot cars. And HO slot cars are about 164th scale. It's the same as Hot Wheels cars that I'm very familiar with from decorating. So I should have thought of that first. I should have thought about the fact that it would be nice to display the cars that I had made and decorated along my racetrack and have them in scale with the uh, racetrack. 
the next issue was that I had a really hard time fitting the track in the space. The Carrera track is famous for being big. It's about twice as wide as the Scalextric 132nd scale. So even if you went with that big scale, you could get a much more efficient use of space uh, by going by the going with the Hornsby Scalextric set. I think, however, and I and I say this with uh, with some doubt because I I do like the idea of having lane changes, pit stops, refueling. These are um, you know these are very interesting in dynamics that could add to the race. But the scale of the big cars. They just don't look like they're, uh, well, you know, they look like they're going kind of fast, but you're, you're taking this lap, and, and the car hardly disappears before it's coming back around again. So I think the scale difference between the 164th and the 132nd gives you that feeling that you're going away, and you're, you're sailing down, and you're on the back corner of the racetrack, and, and now your car is ripping up the back side, you know, and now it's going through the changes and it's coming back the other way. It just gives it the space to breathe that your imagination um, fills in the reality a bit. Now that gets into another question. Is driving a slot car, uh, you know, is it something that the average person could pick up and, and pick up on the skill of it or would that take too long? Because my ultimate dream, you know, was to have some uh, people come over and enjoy playing some slot cars together. I, I thought this would be a, uh, a good experience for me. Like a uh, kind of something that I could make a Thursday night, you know, out of. Like a slot car night and invite people over to race. And it would just be a great time. And, of course, my wife said, who's going to come play? No one's going to come play slot cars with you. When has anyone ever come play slot cars with you? And, and it's, you know, in a way a fair question because I don't know the answer. But then on the other hand, I've never had a slot car set since I've been an adult. So I really don't know if people will come over. My, my imagination is that they will, you know. I'll say something like, hey, do you want to come over and drive some slot cars? I'll pick up some uh, some beer and some snack foods. Uh, you know, all you got to do is come over and race me. So that's a pretty good deal for a couple hours. I don't know why someone wouldn't want to do that. I would do that if somebody asked me, you know. I think it sounds pretty good. So I'm back thinking about the HO tracks, which is... Uh, for me growing up with AFX Aurora were the big names and then those were also tracks that my brothers played with and then I think towards my end when he had uh, aged out of slot cars let's say you know let's say he's 19 and I'm 14 by the end I was getting a, a Tyco track I think Magnum 440 Control Center now that one worked on the HO scale, and the other nice thing about HO scale is that you can set up an HO train set with it. And there's even tracks that have the uh, 
Well, there's train tracks that go right through the uh, slot car track. So you could set up a little train and have it going around its pattern, and every once in a while it'll come across the track. And I'm thinking if you're smart, you'll slow down and let the train go by. So that's an element, an element of fun. Some other elements of fun of the normal two-lane or four-lane slot car tracks is devices like loops. Uh, if you're using magnets, you can go up the wall on a track. There's some ramps. In fact, the uh, Dukes of Hazard race set, which Auto World has remanufactured a few years ago, so you can still buy these new in the box, comes with a jump. There's actually a, uh, a ramp, and you fly across about six inches, and you land on the other piece, and it's sort of catches the slot and it pulls it back in there's sort of a, a v-shaped opening that you land into that guides you in you know there's also things you can drive through um, looks like it's a wall of fire but then you can plow right through it but you can't do the lane changes i don't know why you know no one's really done the lane changes there there were some cars from Aurora AFX that had the uh, total control racing, TCR. Now those to some degree could switch tracks, but they did not have slots. It was just plastic track with the, uh, with the little metal lines in it, you know, that carried the current. I'm not sure how it switched tracks, but it was able to, but not very well. You had to be going just the right speed, and there was about a one in three chance your car would just stop and not go forward anymore. So the more you look into it and the more you research it, which I've done a, just a, a huge amount of research on this, which is my nature. They, uh, they say I'm a, a type five on the Enneagram scale, and... I tend to go down long rabbit holes of gathering information. There's almost like a nothing I like better than just gathering all the information on something. But now that I've got it all, I'm kind of wondering, you know, do I really even want a slot car? Maybe I should just get like a, a you know, a new Xbox and a new Xbox racing game and just race by myself. You know, maybe that would be more fun. But the whole thing is, uh, you know, this dream of standing around in the garage with some other folks I've invited over and, you know, just having a good time playing with something that's not a computer, that's not a phone, that's, uh, that's real in some way that could incorporate my, uh, my desire to decorate the racetrack, you know, build stands and... Uh, build areas, concession stands, maybe build bathroom facilities for the little 164th people. Some grandstands for them to set in, the racing tower, a bridge across, maybe a tire across the, uh, the raceway that says Michelin on it. You know, all the classic tropes of a racetrack. I'm seeing STP stickers and uh, champion spark plugs and, you know, all the, old, uh, all the old symbols that you think about. 
Jackie Stewart wearing a hat. Well, he's there too, you know. So I still got a lot to think about with this slot car stuff. I, uh, I sent that one back. I did not realize that it was going to cost me, uh, you know, a lot of money to send it back. Because uh, I guess the hobby shop was like, hey, what the hell am I supposed to do with this now? You know, it's not like, uh, it's not like you're sending it back to Walmart. So I didn't fight him on it. You know, he took a, he took a pretty large fee, a restocking fee. And, and I figure fair enough, you know, I, I should have, uh, I should have had my ducks in a row before I ordered that. I should have thought about the size of the track and the scale of it and, you know, how it might be different. I definitely, I should have gone somewhere and tried it really first. But now I'm thinking, oh, well, I definitely need an HO track. So, you know, I put some bids in on some things that were on uh, Facebook Marketplace. And it's one guy's got this four-lane uh, Victory 400 with four wireless controllers. It's about 30-something feet of four lanes, you know, of track. It's just this massive, uh, massive setup. And, and this guy had it on there for a pretty good price. So I was thinking, well, hey, that's a no-brainer. I'll just go. I'll just buy that. And uh, he wrote me back like a day or so later and said, well, I'm going to have to go by the post office and see how much it costs to send these cars and track to you. And, and so I, you know, I looked up the size of the box and uh, I told him, you know, it's going to be about $35. So why don't I just give you your price plus $35? And you can go do that. And didn't hear from him. Another day went by. Came back after that and said he's going to the post office uh, the next morning. And the next morning, I assumed he went to the post office. I, I told him I was still interested by text. These are all textual communications. I never heard back from him since. So uh, I don't know. I don't know, you know, if it, I'm thinking it's probably just a hassle, and this is something that uh, is like importance level of five, and he's got a lot of importance level ten, nine, eight, seven, six in front of it, you know, things to do. But I can't stop thinking about it. I keep thinking about this, uh, you know, this car I need to get, and then I wonder, is this thing even going to be even fun? So I'm just all torn up about the cars, man. I've got the... I've got slot cars on the brain. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm living in a slot car fantasy. Uh, a fantasy of delusion and wonder. One of possible fun, possible aggravation. It always makes me realize that sometimes I'm happier wanting things than I am having them. And often when I... Uh, when I say, well, I really need or want this thing, I really want this thing, so I'm just going to buy it, I, it usually ends up being a bigger hang-up hang and hassle than, uh, than just not having it at all and uh, thinking about having it. It's a frivol. Perhaps this whole thing was a frivol. But there's part of me that thinks, no, I really need it. So I'm hoping this guy gets back in touch. I'm... If he gets back in touch, I'll go through with it. I'm going to buy the set, you know. I'm going to buy these other other cars. I've, I've got some ideas. I, I wish that, uh, that they had pit stops. I remember that I had a certain type of, uh, of gas gauge on a slot car set I had as a kid where 
as you drove, the uh, the tachometer for your lane would go up if you, as you revved it. Was not terribly accurate, but somewhat, you know, related to. And then, depending on how much you've got the throttle uh, pulled back, how much current's going through, that makes the gas gauge drop faster. And when the gas gauge gets to the bottom, it simply cuts off power to that lane. And you have to reach up and pump, pump, pump. You know, you just keep pressing this button until you fill it back up with gas. And then you can take off again. So that fulfills the need for a, uh, a pit timer and for taking the, uh, the idea of gas, you know. And the digital sets do much better than this. They, uh, they take into account factors like when you first fill the car up, it's heavier. So they'll limit the performance, and then as you empty the tank out, the performance goes up. They can put things in like track conditions, uh, maybe weather conditions. You can adjust the braking, which is an interesting thing. They call it braking, but when you take out your finger off the throttle on a slot car, it more or less stops. But some of the fancier controllers, they put a rheostat in there that's sort of like a digital delay on music. You can kind of keep it going. And it'll take that quick stop and it'll feather it out over distance. So if, let's say, you turn the brakes all the way down, activated but all the way down, well, you're going to drift, you know, three or four straightaways before you come to a stop if you're going full speed. And that simulates the idea that you're, you know, you're letting off the gas, you're getting on the brakes. And then the Skelectric is kind of nice. They've actually got a brake button in addition to that that you can press. Um, so I kind of like that. You get the best of both worlds. You know, you can let off the throttle and have the simulated braking. But then if you really need to stop right away, you can also press that button to stop. And the same button can be used at certain parts of the track to launch you into even higher speed. If you have a feat, I think they call it DSS, and if you have that feature turned on, you uh, if you set the system to use 100% of the available power, like you want your cars going really fast, well, it'll still hold back if you've got DSS turned on to about 80-something percent, and then when you press the button, it'll give you 100%. So lane changes, laps, uh, pace cars, cautions, you know, weather conditions, all this stuff, uh, lap timers. Man, it sounds like a lot of fun. It really, it really tickles my brain thinking about the fun I could have. But I have to live with the fact that it might just be that the most fun I'm going to have with any of this is the fun I've already had researching it all. And that's a very realistic possibility. Say, how many cars do you think you've ridden in? Do you think that uh, riding in a car qualifies you to drive a slot car professionally? Do you feel that being a passenger has given you the right to criticize others that are driving slot cars? Do you ever think about changing the oil in a car and how that might affect the tire pressure? Or vice versa, have you ever thought about adjusting the lumbar seat in your car and causing a leak in the sunroof? Do you know how a choke works on a car? 
Have you ever pulled an emergency brake? Was it an emergency? What happened? This idea of driving down the road and having a braking emergency and pulling up on that emergency brake, it sure, uh, it sure seemed like something I was ready for when I started driving, but it's been a little disappointing in the past 30 years that it's never really come up with a practical reason to pull the emergency brake. It's more, uh, more accurately called a parking brake. And I understand people in Europe use them. In America, we really don't use the parking brake all the time. We just don't like the idea. It's like umbrellas. We don't use umbrellas either. Uh, we don't wear umbrellas. We don't wear raincoats. We don't, uh, you know, we don't drink tea at 3.30 in the afternoon. This is, this is just habits that came upon us after George Washington did that uh, maneuver in the boats and wore that big blue coat and everything, you know. People just started saying, I want to be like Washington, and uh, we started following him around. He drove a Cutlass. One of those Oldsmobile Cutlass Supremes with the local motion sticker in the back. And uh, perhaps the name of a band they liked. ACDC, for instance, or Van Halen. You know, This was a popular car, I can remember. Another car I remember is the Camaros. I remember people having Camaros and Firebirds. I remember uh, that being a thing, you know. It was sort of a certain audience. It was more of a of a Chevy race audience. People that people that liked that. My my side of the building was more likely to have Volvos and Saabs and uh, things like that because we were all obsessed with Europe and new wave music and and anything from England, you know. Uh, anything from Germany. Uh, it was just. Uh, it was just an artistic ambition to be of and about anything but here. And that was the, uh, you know, that was a guiding force among the, uh, the identity of someone that considered themselves smarter than the average bear. And ahead of the curve, you know, we knew the future. We, Clarissa had yet to explain it all, but we were wearing Doc Martens before she even started on that show, you know. We were... We were wearing them when you had to order them from England, for God's sake. Had to spend several hundred dollars. And, uh, gee, if you wanted half the music we liked, you had to order that too. It wasn't like there was an alternative section in the store stocked with all this stuff. There might have been a, you know, a small amount of stuff that had made its way to airplay of various Top 40 or even MTV or, you know, even 120 minutes by the mid-80s. Yeah, I realize I'm talking too fast, talking too much, but uh, I'm afraid you can't hear me. There's a lot of fan noise in the background. Well, I'll let you know how this slot car thing goes. I'm, you know, I'm still hoping I get one. I, I want to decorate the track. I want to drive it around. Uh, I want to hang out with people coming over and having an excuse just to get together. I think that's the best... Uh, justification for any of it an excuse to get together in person real people having real experiences all right back to you pq oh man shed i always i mean when i was a kid they had the, the the slot cars i don't think they were as big and as cool and as special as what you're talking about but i had friends who had them and the few times they put it all together 
And I tr I just, that I am not, <laughs> I am just hapless with that sort of thing. Although I would love to try it. And, you know, make the worst case scenario, I guess the cars go flying off the track, but I suppose that can damage the delicate mechanisms in them. So if you invite me over and I play with your slot cars, let's make sure we have plenty of cushioning all around those sharp turns so nothing gets destroyed. But I mean, I did somebody said, hey, it's just come out. You don't have to buy me beer. Or, I don't I don't drink beer, but you get some pizza and we just hang out and have a good time. That really sounds like some classic all-time fun playing slot cars. And I love the idea of getting away from screens and two-dimensional and playing with actual physical objects again. I was a sandbox guy as a, a little kid, as a, a little recapitulation reminded me of. I could have probably spent all day just... In a sandbox, I, I didn't need, I mean, the accessories are great. You put little soldiers in there and you can have a war. There's so much you can do. And I, I love that stuff. And in my head, I almost dream of having a sandbox. But, you know, sand gets in your shoes and there's a, when you get old, all that stuff just starts. It's so much neater when it's on a screen now, isn't it? But I, boy. That sounds like just the biggest and coolest toy of all time. And that uh, Total Control Racing is actually a song by the Sleaford Mods, who are a British hip-hop rap group. So if you look that up, TCR, Total Control Racing, by the Sleaford, S-L-E-A-F-O-R-D, Mods. I, I think you will enjoy it. And the video on YouTube is pretty classic. I, I, I like those guys quite a bit. I probably mentioned them at some time in the past, back in days of quake reversal satellites and such. Um, cars, cars, um, real cars. I haven't owned a real car since 1994. I'm a walking man, and somehow I think my life extension from walking everywhere outweighs the inconvenience and the lack of travel, that not having an automobile. And everybody has, there's a fellow over at the cafe that him and I just go back and forth. He just can't imagine living without a car. And I respect that, but that I don't want one still somehow gets his goat. I really, I find that almost funny. I, I'm hapless with them. And probably I don't have enough focus and attention to be driving one of those things around. Somebody may get hurt. Plus, they're just, it's, to me, with my very low income, it's just a money pit. Uh, what people put into automobiles to have this transportation. I'm all for trains and mass transit. And if I ever move out, of truth or consequences, you can best believe I'm going to live somewhere where there is buses and trains and you can get around. And yes, I'll still walk. I love my walks. It, it clears my head. It makes me think in a different way that operating a car does. And believe me, I have a lot to roll through my brain. 
for sure. Um, the great stuff, Chad. And uh, like I say, if you ever want to adopt, uh, if you've got a little back house you could put PQ River in, I'll play slot cars with you whenever you want. <laughs> oh, man, Alabama, that, that, that's actually nice country. Maybe someday, uh, you never know. Uh, th I, then I could be near both Chad and Mike Booty. Imagine the grand unsug fun of the three of us being able to regularly team up and assault your brains and earwaves with our uh, mixed bag of bags that would come out of us teaming as a podcast force. Now there, there is a dream. Anyways, um, uh, let's check the mail. I don't think we have anybody else, but uh, I promised I would release this on Wednesday and it's only Tuesday. So somebody may yet sneak in the back door, but I am going to go ahead and let's check out what Frank Edward Nora, I guess we did talk about cars at some point or other. Now that I think about it, I think that's when I first discovered that Jimbo was a huge Cars fan. Uh, but you can never say enough about the great motor vehicle that runs our lives. So here's Frank. I guess it was about uh, 10 years ago. We were out in Long Island, and I, I was talking to my niece, who was just about uh, to get her driver's license. And I asked her, oh, are you going to learn how to drive a manual transmission? And she just, I, I, she just laughed. She's like, what? <laughs> of course not. Why would I do that? I guess she knew about it. She knew about manual transmission, but I guess the common consensus was that it's stupid to learn to drive a manual transmission. Why would you want to do that? And I suppose people really don't have manuals anymore. How are you going to even learn if your parents don't have a manual transmission? So I'm like, I don't know. Like, you might be in a situation where there's a car that you might want to drive. And you, if you don't know it, you really won't be able to drive it. I mean, it's not the kind of thing you can just learn in five minutes. It takes a while to learn. She's like, yeah, I don't think it would ever be relevant to me. So it was interesting when I... Uh, Went to Europe, especially in Greece, uh, back in uh, 2019. It's 2023 now. Um, uh, I found out that in Europe, I mean, manual transmissions are still extremely common. Everyone drives manual. And in fact, uh, we had a rental on this island, this like van kind of thing, and uh, it was manual. They didn't really have, on these little islands, Zakynthos, this was the island, they didn't really have automatic transmissions on all classes of cars. Uh, so I knew how to do it. I hadn't driven one in years, but it's like riding a bike or juggling. It's that kind of muscle memory kind of thing. You just, you know, if you if you ever learned how to do it, you're never going to forget. That's kind of cool. It's a cool feature of the human being. Once you learn something like that, like how to ride a bike, you're going to like always, it, it, those pathways are burnt into your mind in some way. So yeah, I was able to do it. You know, like when it's, it's interesting when you drive manual transmission, for those of you that don't know, um, you know, you have to, the reason why it's t tough is that you have to push down on this clutch as you're, and then pull up on it as you're putting the gas on. And then each gear, you have to kind of do the same thing, you know, I know I'm not describing that properly, but it's like you're disengaging the transmission, then re-engaging it for each gear, right? And, uh, it just becomes second nature. You don't even think about it once you know how to do it, but each car has different ratios or different feel to it. So when you first start, it's going to feel weird. 
before you get used to the transmission, and, and then, you can, then it sort of becomes second nature. So this actually came up when I was, uh, you know, I'm going to be renting a car in Italy on our trip coming up actually in just about one week, a week from tomorrow we're leaving. And most of the rental cars are, are manual. I suppose that if you really needed it, you could probably get a, an automatic, but it would be a lot harder. And I wonder how many of these kids that laugh at learning, manu- at learning how to drive a manual are faced, especially if they go to Europe or some other place. Imagine you, you reserve an automatic, oh, but oh, the only ones left are manual. You'll be out of luck. You're not going to be able to figure it out. It took me a long time. I had a hard time learning it. It took me like, I don't know, a few months, I think, to really to master it. The worst, of course, is if you're on a hill facing up, stopped, and now you have to get into first gear. It is so nerve-wracking because if you're not used to it, you have to essentially uh, take your foot off the brake and right go into first gear, and then your foot is – so you have to hold down the clutch, go into first gear, and then start let, you start easing the pressure on the clutch as you're increasing the pressure on the, the gas. And if you don't do it right, your car will stall. And uh, I remember being, it was so nerve-wracking that sometimes you, I, I learned the trick. You can turn on your safety brake in that situation, and then you can sort of have a little bit of, few, uh, you, know, you can have a little bit of respite. Once you get it going, you can turn off the safety brake, then you'll be all right. So, yeah, that's one of the intricacies of cars is the, the manual transmission, which I know in this country, in the USA, People don't think about it anymore. Very few people have it. My friend Peter, though, from the Three Weasels, he he will only buy manual. In fact, to get a manual, he it has to be special order from the company. He only buys Hondas, so he has to order it and then wait months for it to be actually built. There's, I don't think anyone has manual transmissions like sitting on the lot for people to buy. Very few people would prefer them, and in fact, my cars don't have them anymore. I mean, it's not like I I I, I have enjoyed it over the years, but it's not like it's something I really care that much about. But you know, it's still, it's one of those things about cars. You know, the ma- the whole thing of learning how to drive manual is this thing. And I wonder if there's people who think they can just learn it in like two minutes. And no, no, I don't think so. It's a, it's a thing that is, is very unintuitive. You know? So, yeah, we'll see. It should be interesting driving in Italy. The only place I ever drove in Europe was in, on that one island in Greece. That's the only time I drove. That was nerve-wracking. <laughs> And I was just looking at at the the road leading up to the the town where my grandfather grew up in in northern Italy, and it's like this twisty, mountainous, single-lane road. I'm like, oh, God, of course. It'll be this white-knuckle, like, nerve-wracking thing. (laughs) Driving is stressful. It really is, you know. Uh, And it's interesting, like, especially here in New Jersey, you have to get to know the highways. It's almost like playing a game. Like especially like 287 when I when I get on um, from 46, you're in the far right lane as you're merging in, and then like you have to keep going left. Like I remember merge like shifting lanes to the left twice, and then a few minutes later you're you're back in the right lane because those lanes run out. It's so bizarre. Like the lanes just run out, and then you have to keep shifting over. And then 287 North uh, when you're approaching the 46 and 80, it's like uh, right. You have to get over like when you see those. There's two. The two far right lanes are, are going to ten, so then you want to be in that third lane over, 
But then it then you have to shift over like two or three more times to the right. It is bizarre. And of course, in New Jersey, if you're if you're in like a middle lane, the idea is you're not supposed to pass people on the right, but people do it all the time. So if you want to go to the right, you have to be very aware. You know, look in your mirror and check your blind spot. This blind spot thing, and of course, in the mirror, objects in mirror are are are, are closer than they appear. That whole all all that jazz. You know, <laughs> it's like. What the hell? Why could they make a mirror that's more accurate? Sometimes it is frightening. You, you say, oh, that truck's far away. And you, sh- you change lanes and you look in your, your regular rear view mirror. Oh, my God, it's actually really close. So now, the, see, I, ha- I have my father's car now because he passed away. It's a Honda Passport 2019. And it doesn't have that thing. It's, it's the, the, our, our other Honda, the 2022, has this great thing where if there's someone – to the left or right of you, it'll it'll show a little icon on the on the side view mirrors to warn you, and it'll beep if if you if you start uh, turning or if you, even if you put your turn single on, it'll start beeping because of that damn blind spot, you know. So all of these uh, intricacies of driving, you know, it's but driving can be a lot of fun too. It really is a sense of freedom. In fact, um, I remember uh, in Epcot Center, you know, in Florida. Disney World. Listen, forget about all you know. But I, I know these days everyone hates Disney. They, they, they get woke, go broke, all that kind of stuff. And Disney is just whatever. You got to remember, the theme parks were something completely unique, especially back in the in the seventies and eighties. And my mother was a big fan, and we went there a lot. And especially in eighty three, Epcot Center was only open less than a year. And I remember going there. Absolutely, there's nothing else like it in the world. Amazing place. Um, they had a ride called uh, in in Future World at Epcot Center. They had a ride called uh, World of Motion. It's all about cars. It was sponsored by General Motors. And uh, the original narration, I believe, was remember the guy Gary Owens, the announcer Gary Owens. I think he did work on the Gong. I think he was the host of the Gong Show briefly, right? Hello, my name is Gary Owens. Remember that guy? And it, 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 you know, it's one of those dark rides. It, you're on this little, in this little car, not, I mean, not a car, but in a little seat. It's actually not a seat. It's like, it is like a little stylized blue car kind of thing. This, this ride has long been demolished, unfortunately, but you can, there's tons and tons of videos. And so you can sort of vicariously experience the ride. I actually went on the ride many times uh, myself. Gary Owen start, starts off with these cavemen and their feet are all sore. The original transportation was foot power, you know, and it goes through, through all like the railroads and and boats. And, and then finally, the arrival of the automobile, you know, and uh, all throughout, they're singing this song. It's fun to be free, to be on the move, to go anywhere with never a care to do all you wanted to do. It's fun to be free, to be free. Yeah. And then, and and then towards the end, there's one of those tunnels with like a, a film showing, and it feels like you're going really fast. And then you see a city of the future, and then you get to the Trans Center, um, the sort of transportation center, Trans Center. See, things no, no one would have thought there was any other meaning to Trans Center back then. And it was this, it was like a museum of the automobile, and they had all these different displays. It was amazing. I mean, I don't think there's really any equivalent of something like this today. Not only because our minds and our sensibilities were so different back then, but people don't make things like this anymore. But they had, um, I remember they were like, 
showing like this concept vehicle called the Lean Machine, which was like this kind of little. I don't know. If, I think it was a gas powered, but it was like this little car. It was almost like a, like a motorcycle, but it was really slow down to the ground, and it was covered. And he also had a whole thing about the water engine, all the different attempts to make a a, a car run on water. You know how that all works. You know, it's very enticing because water, very plentiful in many areas. Some areas is not, but is is made of H two O, hydrogen and oxygen, and that it's really the hydrogen is like explosive. Right, so you could like explode the hydrogen to create energy, and the thing is, all you have to do is put two electrodes in in water, and the positive and the negative, and the hydrogen goes into one, and the oxygen goes in the other one. So you can actually isolate the hydrogen very easily. So the idea is, if you can, uh, if that explosive power of the hydrogen is um, can obviously be used to generate electricity, the same way that exploding. Gasoline vapors in the en- in an internal combustion engine can be changed into motive force, you know, using cylinders, etc. Uh, that you can both drive the car, make the car move, and also generate electricity to get more hydrogen. Now, um, nice idea, but I think every time you try it, uh, right, you're getting you're 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 going to be losing energy each cycle, so it's not going to last, right. The idea is that uh, somehow the energy it takes to isolate the hydrogen is is uh, you know takes too much energy. But they had a whole thing about that. Then they had uh, a bird and one of those robot arms. Like back then, it was all you know the, all the ri- the things people were talking about. Like robots were taking people's jobs in Detroit. All this stuff. What an amazing ride! And then they they tore it down at some point in the, I don't know in the later 1990s or something. I don't know exactly when and turned it into the test track, more of a thrill ride which was kind of the, the story of so much of Epcot. Um, the original Epcot was so inspired and so amazing and such a huge influence on me. And it is sad what happened to it. There's actually a guy on Facebook uh, creating something called Futureport 82, which is a um, trying to recreate Epcot Center as it was on opening day in 3D using a game uh, engine. Really amazing stuff. The guy's still working on it, Futureport 82. Uh, I don't know about the latest version, but the first version he put out, you, like when you go into a ride like World of Motion, it seamlessly shifts into the best available video of the ride, right? Um, so you really feel like you're visiting uh, Epcot. But yeah, just that idea of freedom and freedom to go where you want to go, when you want to go. Uh, here in New Jersey, back in the 50s, they, they opened this New Jersey Turnpike. And it really revolutionized travel. I mean, I think it's hard for us to really understand how difficult it was to drive to certain places because the roads were like crap, right? You had to drive through all these dirt roads and all this crap, and just getting from point A to point B was like torture. But when they started building what was the interstate highway system, which they're still working on, right? I remember growing up, the interstate that's nearest to where I grew up in Bridgewater is, uh, is, is Route 78. It wasn't even open yet. It was not open yet when I was growing up. It only opened, I think, in like the late 80s or something, um, at least by me. And it was like a brand new highway. And then even more recently, within the past 20 years, uh, um, the new Route 24 uh, was uh, w- was built. That wasn't there at all. So they're still building out the interstate highway system. But that was such a revolution in driving because now if you have a car, you can drive literally anywhere in the continental United States 
uh, on these interstates, which are essentially, um, they're not, well, <laughs> I suppose some of them are toll roads, like the, the Turnpike is essentially 90, Interstate 95 in New Jersey, and it does have tolls, but sometimes some of them don't have tolls. That's kind of annoying, the toll roads. But anyway, uh, yeah, so you could basically kind of go anywhere and get pretty close to where you want to go, and then you got to take local roads to get to where you're going. But like, like Route 80 here in Jersey, it, go, it, it goes all the way across the country to San Francisco, right? From, from New York City to San Francisco, this one road. Um, I think we drove, I know we, we drove out west a bunch of times when I was growing up out to Montana, taking those interstates. So, and then of course there were Howard Johnsons everywhere, <laughs> you know. And then that company went belly up somehow. Can you imagine these companies that sort of had a lock on everything? They were like the ultimate roadside restaurant, Howard Johnson's. But they failed. Though there are still Howard Johnson hotels. There's one actually not far from here, and there's another one on Route 22, I always see, that has a lot, that the orange roof, and sometimes you even see the Simple Simon logo. Uh, it's, it's wild how there's this remnant of this thing, and generations now have no idea what, what Howard Johnson's was and what it was to motorists, right? It was something that you would, I think before all the chains were around, I think it, as you were driving around the country, Howard Johnson's would be a familiar sight, and you'd kind of know what you were you were going to get at a Howard Johnson's. And I, there was one uh, right by um, where my grandparents lived in New Brunswick, right by uh, the intersection of Routes One and Eighteen. And uh, we used to go there all the time. I remember I, I loved the fried clams. Kind of horrific to me in my current vegan mindset, but I do remember those fried clams. They're very rubbery, but they were very tasty, though. Howard Johnson's, and then of course. One of the Johnson clan uh, came up with the idea of the ground round, which was, I think that the problem with Howard Johnson's is that they didn't adapt with the times. They just sort of kept going with what their formula, which was working less and less as, as we got into the 80s, maybe even the 70s. Um, yeah, I think it was the 70s they, start, they started to fall behind. You know, things like the Bennigan's, the ground round, those kind of eateries that were, were more popular. So the ground round was kind of, Related to Howard Johnson's, then that went belly up as well, you know. But yeah, our cars, like driving. I've been driving so much more uh, since my father got sick and then passed away earlier this year. I've been driving constantly. And, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a different state of mind. It's a different state of existence while you're driving. It's it Basically, you sort of, in a way, you sort of become the car in some ways. And I know that uh, Marshall McLuhan talks about this in his book, um, you know, uh, what's it called, The Extensions of Man, uh, Understanding Media. Anyway, I forget exactly what it's called, but sort of how when we engage with a a system like a car, it's almost like it becomes an extension of our body, right? Like we sort of get to know, like, the shape of the car and its position and, right, we sort of become the the control system for the car. We are the control system for the car, right? Um, so it's kind of interesting that we sort of become the car. And the car culture in the United States was so, has been so much a part of our history, right? Especially like teenagers wanting to have a car and have the best car or a van, right? And apparently, you know, the mechanics of the whole thing, a car you could sort of, 
even a teenager could sort of in their garage take it a, take a car apart and put it back together. Uh, the, you could take apart an engine and put it back together. Uh, it was it was it, it was much more basic th- systems then. Now, of course, it's the technology is so advanced that you, this you couldn't do this. You need specialized like technicians to deal with our current cars, which are really our current cars are functionally very similar to cars from I guess even from back to the 30s. I know when you get further back than that, the cars are. Um, well, no, I think even from the beginning, the cars were fairly similar, right? The earliest cars, you know, like from over 100 years ago, they could go reasonably fast and, you know, they had manual transmissions, obviously. Um, but I think that they would break down more. And, of course, early on, you had to crank, you had to go in the front and crank it to get it going, you know. Then they then they started with the electric starter motor because the, the idea of an internal combustion engine is that, right, you have to get it started, right? The, it, it, what it's self powering, but it can't really start itself, right? Because you need you have all these pistons, right? And in sequence, they uh, when the piston is cl- is is towards the point where it's closed, you ignite with a gasoline car. There's a spark plug, and the spark explodes a bit of a, a vapor that's in the chamber, and that explosive force pushes the uh, the piston out, right? And, and in sequence, these can be made to create a linear force, you know, through revolutions. And, um, right, once it gets going, it powers itself. It keeps itself going. But, it, it, yeah, you have to need either hand crank or, obviously, electric starter motors or you know, better, but yeah, that's why, like, when your battery's dead, you can't start your car, unless you're on a hill, right, in a way, I think if you're on a hill, right, you can, it can kind of, I remember that you can uh, get it going if you're on a hill, you can, like, start rolling down the hill, turn the key, it goes, and because, right, the gravity's pulling your car down, you can actually um, start the car that way. (laughs) Yeah, but, uh, you know, cars as extensions of ourselves, not just in terms of controlling them, but in terms of how we view ourselves, we view ourselves by our cars. Like, like you know, what kind of car do you have? And I, re- I read an article about someone who's like, who was a doctor living in some town somewhere, and it's like they were pressured. Like, I think they had like, I don't know, a Toyota or something. They're pressured to get like a BMW or a Mercedes, like, you, you feel this pressure that to fit in to your circle of your echelon of associates and social circle, you need to sort of get a certain car to fit in. And if you don't, you're like shunned in some way. There was actually an episode of that short-lived but excellent TV show called It's Like You Know, where Elliot Gould was the guest star and he was driving a Toyota and they were all talking about all shaming him for having such like a crappy car. Being, if, and as he's sort of a big celebrity guy, he should have a much better car than a Toyota, you know. Um, so yeah, it's weird. Like I've actually never really. I mean, I've been pretty particular about what car I like and I don't like. But I had a I had a Jeep Wrangler from '93 to about 2006 ish. I loved that. I loved it, and it was manual. It was manual. It had that big gear shift. Um, 
that goes all the way down to the floor. So the gear shift itself is a couple feet high. And I just love driving that one. I think it had 150 horsepower motor. And it's back when the uh, headlights were still square. It was a black uh, Wrangler with the hard top, removable hard top. I did remove, remove it a few times. That's probably my favorite car I ever had. When I was growing up, my father had a, a BMW 2002 from 1976 model. And um, I eventually got, ha I, I was able to drive that one. And uh, that was a great little car too. Again, manual transmission and uh, a fun little sporty car. Um, then I remember like my father had a Volvo I would drive. And then my grandfather had a Peugeot that I borrowed. Then I had a Ford LTD uh, sedan that I crashed <laughs> early, like in the snow. Um, yes, yeah, so I didn't really have, I was driving my parents' car until I got that Jeep as my own car. And then basically that was, that was my car until I got married. And then, uh, you know, we had, my wife and I would usually would share, like, well, she had a car while I had the Jeep. I'm trying to think what we had early on. I think. I'm not sure what kind of I, I I'm trying to remember what car we had. I know we had a Matrix, a Toyota Matrix, and then we started getting into the Hondas, like the Honda CRVs. So we've this is like our third CRV. So we love the Honda CRVs. It, it does share some cat some of the aspects of of a, of a Jeep. It's higher up off the ground. It's also a, a a CRV, unlike a Jeep, is kind of like an invisible car. No one will ever notice it. It's not a prestige vehicle. It's just sort of generic. And that's the thing. If you look at this, is something that really bugs me about cars. If you look into the past, the incredible shapes that cars came in, and how now most cars, like here is a car driving down the street. What is that? A Toyota. Um, if you if you look into the past, the cars generally were kind of flatter, closer to the ground, and had very very distinctive shapes and styles. Now they're almost all the same sort of bulbous kind of shape, whether it's a sedan or there are still some sedans, but not with those big trunks that sort of stretch out the back, you know. Um, I think it has something to do with, like, the aerodynamics and all the laws related to fuel efficiency and everything. Here's another one. This is, what is this? That's a Honda something. What's the bigger one? Bigger than the Passport. What is that one called? I forget. Um, but I think the cars today are very indistinct. The design is a little uninspired. And it's really interesting when you when you see a movie that's in the either from the past or based in the past, like the cars are different, right? That's one of the main visual clues as to what time period you're in is the look of the cars, right? And uh, another thing I really love is the, uh, the concept cars, you know. Um, I remember I was really sort of obsessed with the uh, Plymouth Prowler, which was originally a concept car, and then they actually released it into production. I was like, back in like the early 90s, I, I really wanted one, but it was like, you know, incredibly expensive and hard to find. But the main one they would show was like purple, and it's sort of based on kind of like an original hot rod design. Remember remember the Plymouth Prowler? Remember Plymouth? <laughs> they're, not, they're not around anymore. They went belly up. Are they the one that they had briefly had a had a, a logo with like a, a sailing ship in it, Plymouth, before they went out of business? Yeah, so many car companies that went out of business, you know. Um, but then there was that trend towards weird cars, like in the '90s, like the Pontiac Aztec, which was considered almost like Edsel Part Two, you know, 
really ugly and it played a part in like uh, the show TV show Breaking Bad had a lot of cars in it and the and the Aztec was it was almost like a character and then Walter White got his son a car and it was one of those um uh PT Cruisers which is meant to look kind of like a hot rod but it was kind of a dorky car in fact I do I did like the design of it at first and I've uh sort of thought that that other timeline, the other version of me where I went to school in Minnesota instead of New Jersey, I wound up in California and had a PT Cruiser, which was an incredibly nerdy car. But I thought it was cool in that other timeline, the the, the PT Cruiser uh, convertible. But I, I think now maybe the PT Cruiser and then the one of the other car companies had one that was almost exactly the same. <sighs> what the heck was it called? I forget, I forget, but it's one of the other car companies, and it was the same designer, kind of taking some cues from the old hot rods and um, sort of applying it to a modern car. And they're always sort of based on a on the same platform as a regular sedan, but then giving it this different shape. I always thought, why not just recreate the cars of the past, but just the what's the guts of them, the engines and the systems on the inside can be updated, but make them look like the old car. Why not? And I think it may have to do with the fuel efficiency and the aerodynamics and things like that. But cars were so much cooler in the past, you know. But, yeah, some really, like, the concept cars. I love looking up concept cars. There's one called, like, was it the Chrysler Atlantic or Atlantica from the 90s? That's such a cool-looking car. And there's only, like, one in existence. And it used to be in a museum in Detroit or something. And now I don't know what happened to it. Then there's of of course the uh, the saga of Detroit, a city that was uh, Motor City, you know, with the center of the automobile industry in the United States and its rise and fall, you know, it's wild stuff. I was actually researching it because, you know, when you hear about unions, it's very hard to get like definitive information. Like recently, there's this trucking company called Yellow Trucking. It's been around for 99 years. And their their logo, though, is orange, but they're called yellow. It's very annoying. But anyway, they went out of business uh, within the past few weeks, actually. I think within a month, last month. And part of it was that their entire, their truck drivers were all unionized and the Teamsters, and they kept exerting more and more pressure on the company, um, you know, for higher wages, better benefits, yada, yada. And... I think that perhaps it wasn't the only factor, but it seems that due to the continued pressure, and who doesn't want higher wages? Who doesn't want better working conditions? Everyone does. And yes, uh, business people do try everything they can do to screw over their employees, whatever they can get away with. So it's sort of a horrible situation. You'd think that human beings cooperating and getting together to achieve tasks is perhaps the natural state, but when you insert this economic system we're living under it drives people into this state where instead of working together we're working at cross purposes so maybe this is the system to blame but they really kept pushing and kept pushing this company and it may not have been the only factor but I, I it seemed to be one of the factors as to why this company just went out of business and I was reading a little bit about it. Like the, the union leaders were like, listen, if you can't pay a good wage, if you can't pay for gas, maybe you shouldn't be in the trucking co- business. 
So I don't know. I, I think it's so politically charged and culturally charged, it's hard to get any, like, real perspective on union issues. Because I've never been in a union, and I feel very ambivalent towards it. I understand both sides of the argument, but was it something like 30,000 good union trucking jobs were evaporated overnight? And that's what sort of drove me to kind of research Detroit because they say that the United Auto Workers and their their strikes against the, the U.S. auto manufacturers in Detroit were one of the factors that uh, eventually uh, led to the collapse of the U.S. auto industry. They were describing it as, uh, you know, these series of strikes against these companies. And the smaller car companies were, I forget the name of them, but a couple of them were completely the workers all went on strike and the companies just went out of business. They could not meet the demands uh, of the workers. And then all of Detroit kind of got destroyed. And I was trying to figure out, was it the union's fault? And it seems like really, truly, there's super complicated issues. But And of course, if you don't fight for your rights as a worker, you're going to be exploited. But at the same time, it just sort of seems like having those people at cross purposes, both sides, the workers and the management are doing everything they can to screw over the other one. And who cares what happens? I think it's, yeah, so, yeah, it's just kind of hard to figure out. But, yeah, that was kind of an American shame how our car companies just sort of fell behind the rest of the world, especially Japan at that time, like in the in the 80s, right? Um, you know, the Japanese car companies were much more efficient in some ways or, and so now most of these cars, like our car, was built up in uh, Ontario, Canada. You know, it wasn't built in Japan. It's a Honda. It's a Japanese company. It was built in Canada. So they now are running auto plants here, here in the U.S. But driving a car, right, you have to learn how to drive. You have to learn the rules of the road. And it is frustrating because driving around, I don't think driving education is what it used to be. People are drive like maniacs. I mean, almost every time I drive any distance, there's these, and usually young men are driving super fast, weaving in and out. I, I see it almost every time I drive. And I never see a cop pulling them over. Well, they probably can't catch them because their cars are so tuned up. They can't. The cop cars can't catch those guys. Um, also, the use of turn signals has diminished over time. And there's this one intersection by me where essentially it's a single lane road, but then it goes to two lanes when you get to the light, right? And um, basically, if you're going to go straight, it's probably better to be in the left lane because the road again goes to a single lane. Um, but the left lane is people turning left. So if there's someone turning left, they you have to wait until all the cars have gone the other way. So usually what you do, if someone has their turn signal on, You'll be like, okay, well, they're turning. I'm going to go in that right lane. And then since most likely there'll be people coming the other direction, they'll have to wait. You know, they'll pull up a little bit and then wait for the, oh, the traffic the other way to stop. So I'll have plenty of time in that right lane to go past them and then ease on into the single lane. But it's so frustrating because so many times I see, oh, there's a car in front of me, but it doesn't have its blinker on. So I guess they're going straight. Then as soon as the light turns green... Then they turn their blinker on, if they even turn it on at all, and then I'm stuck, you know. So I've just started going to – I'm like, listen, these people, uh, the, you know, I don't know what it is. I mean, you know, the, like driving a car was – like I think it's funny because even though 
my generation, Generation X, were considered the slackers, and you know we didn't we didn't have to um, you know, we didn't experience any real economic hardship like the depression. Even though in the 70s there was a bit of that, there was a gas crisis and stuff. Um, there still was this, and even though we were very cynical and complained about all the rules all the time, there was this stronger sense that the rules really mattered, like the rules of the road and knowing how to drive properly. It was just part of the culture that sort of seeped into you that, yeah, it's really important to follow these rules. And it's it's not like anyone necessarily said that over and over again, but you just sort of absorbed the culture. As cynical as you were, you kind of knew it was important to know the rules of the road. And I think that's eroded over the years, you know. Uh, and I think it is. And even as, you know, I've talked about this, like growing up, like you were... You wanted to get away with as much as you could, but you still had really a much greater sort of respect for authority and respect for your parents and your friends' parents and stuff. You know, it was, it's one of these funny things. It's just sort of like uh, a much stricter kind of society, which was easing off, but my generation, at least I'm an older Xer, born in 67, really kind of absorb that kind of stuff. So anyway, driving around, seeing people drive like maniacs and just drive poorly. And I do drive poorly sometimes, too. Everyone does, you know. Uh, and then there's the honking of the horn, which drives me nuts. My um, People are so impatient, like my bus stop, when I used to go into work more often. There's a light that... Uh, the, 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 actually, the intersection before the other intersection I was talking about, by the Dunkin' Donuts there. Uh, you will... I will almost constantly hear honking of horns. Now... The rule is you're only supposed to honk your horn in case of danger, right? But the light turns green, and then a split second later, honk, 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 right? Yes, someone may, may not be paying attention. So I do not honk. In fact, I was behind someone just the other day, I think just yesterday or over the weekend. The person uh, was at a light, and they were not moving. And I w- did not honk. I just waited, and then after about, this was probably more like five to ten seconds, then they realized that they kept going, and then other people behind me started honking. Uh, but really, is it worth it? Like, just give them a few seconds to get themselves together. Yes, it's not ideal to not move when the light turns green, but, you know, you're going to get where you want to go in the same, pretty much the same amount of time. Because especially with all the lights, Right. You're really literally not going to get there any sooner, right? Because you're going to catch the next light. Unless you can beat a few lights, then maybe you'll get there a few seconds earlier. But there's no reason to start honking and being rude to each other. But that's what people do. Um, yeah, driving really brings out a lot of the negative characteristics of people. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, People are impatient, and they're just hyper-focused on their own reality. Like, I need to go forward, and if this person's blocking me, honk, honk, honk. <laughs> yeah. But what about the future of cars? Well, you know, I know that we're seeing a bit of a lull with this AI thing and self-driving cars, and you only hear articles, self-driving car crashes, self-driving car hits, hits wall or whatever, but uh, the self-driving cars are going to... I think going to become bigger and bigger and I think that will lead to the end of uh, individual car ownership because right if your car can drive itself 
right? Most of the time, your car is sitting idle. It's sitting in your driveway, and then you have to drive it somewhere. Then it's in a parking lot, and then it sits there, and then you got to come home. If your car can drive itself, just imagine. It could be an Uber driver. It could make you money, right? Your car can go pick up people, drive them around. You'll make some extra bucks instead of your car just sitting there, right? Once everyone realizes that, there'll be an excess capacity of these self-driving cars to do Uber or Lyft-type things. I think people will start to stop owning cars as uh, there'll be this uh, mass numbers of self-driving cars that will imagine Uber, but without having to like all the social awkwardness of dealing with the human drivers. It would be amazing, and I think that's coming very soon. So I think I think it will get to a point that humans driving cars will be eventually made illegal because once you have all the cars self-driving all communicating with each other, it will be much safer and it will eliminate most of these traffic jams. Almost everywhere I go now, there's a traffic jam on, on my ride. Middle of the day, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, massive traffic jam. And it's not even because of an accident. It's just what it, what it is is people like rubbernecking. Oh, there's there's a car crash on the other going the other direction. Everyone slows down and looks and that causes this cascading effect. And I don't know what the progress is on this, but for example, uh, the bus going into New York City, there's a bus lane eventually. The last few miles is, is a dedicated bus lane uh, that goes uh, miles and miles before you get to the tunnel and then goes through the Lincoln Tunnel and then goes into the bus terminal. So that is almost always backed up. There's always a jam, right? So the idea is if, it's, if everything's jammed and, every, and all the buses are completely s- still, then whatever's causing the jam eases up right so the first bus starts going and then the next bus driver oh i see that car is moving maybe i should start moving then that what so there's this cascading there said so there's this huge delay it could be minutes upon minutes before the 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 bus at the end starts moving right well meanwhile if they're self-driving right they can all start moving at the same time because they're all communicating with each other oh the first bus the jam has let up, starts moving. It can communicate with all of them to start moving. It would eliminate, it would increase the throughput of the tunnel massively. Again, imagine all of the cars on the roads uh, self-driving and all interconnected. It would ease all these traffic jams, right? It could either divert cars into other directions, and, of course, there'll be no more rubbernecking. There'll be no more. They, they, they did studies. They say in heavy traffic, sometimes one person tapping on the brakes could cause this cascading effect, causing a traffic jam. Because it's so annoying. Like on the parkway, I, I remember massive traffic jams. And then at some point, nothing happened. There's no police cars. There's no crashed cars. There's nothing. And, it's cars, and, and then it, you just start going fast again. And it's just like this weird mass hysteria phenomenon. Phenomena, whatever. Anyway. Driving is cool. I'm glad I've been able to drive the many years I have been. And uh, I do think the era of humans driving cars, if the technology continues advancing as it seems to be, will be over soon. And, of course, you will still be able to drive cars, but in uh, as a hobbyist. They'll be like – they'll build like towns and roads in a safe environment where you can drive vintage cars yourself. It'll become like a hobby, almost like, you know – 
like you know today people that that have guns they have to go to a gun range to to practice their hobby so i think you'll have to go to like a car a car place you know a special a specialized car village to to drive your car and you'll of course have to take i mean your car will have either self-drive you to the place or you'll have to sort of have your car towed by a self-driving tow truck to to the place and then you can drive it around <laughs> the heck man cars in my car i feel safest of all right i heard that in my car the other day gary newman cars i heard the extended version back to you pq oh yes the wonderful world of driving uh this is cars and people when they're actually operating them and the hurry we get in I mean, the downtown of Truth or Consequences is what? Perhaps three quarters of a mile. And they try to keep the speed limit down to 30. And there are people who have to zip through there at 70, 80 miles an hour because they're in a hurry. Now, when you think about it, how much time could they possibly save even if they're in a hurry? And this is a senior town. Uh, people can... Old people in the street have to duck for cover and get run over. But so somebody can save what? 15 seconds? A minute? Two minutes? I mean, what we do with time, which is a whole other topic altogether. Oh, what happens with time when it starts opening and closing? But they say the faster you travel, uh, as you approach the speed of light, time starts to distort. So that might be part of the thing. Um, cars and people and how important they are. There are people who spend, even here, well, used to. Now that rents have gone up, that's a little different. But there used to be people who spent more a month on their car and whatever maintenance and gas and insurance than they spend on their rent uh but especially americans we love our personal motor car and it's we'll die for it we will pay lots of money to watch other people operate cars we will play video games that are basically somebody driving a car i'm awful at those especially i don't know i never got the hang of a manual transmission i have a I, I sort of can do it, but Lord help me, especially like Frank said, on a hill or something, it, it's terrifying. It's just, and uh, when the Europeans were visiting, they were just amazed that nobody, that you they used the handbrake, which I guess is in the middle part. That's what, it, a, a footbrake. And using it seemed to be a real, and and of course again, the they use uh, the it wasn't a manual transmission, it was an automatic. Uh, just these small nuances uh, of how Americans use cars, and I I I would always choose an automatic transmission. Uh, call me crazy, and you know that's that's possibly true regardless of what kind of car 
and what kind of transmission I prefer. I am PQ River, uh, even though I may be Brett these days and an appreciator of the nuances of reality. Yeah. But another exciting week, another overnight scape central. Um, let's where nobody, no, nobody. And we now go into the books and think about next week when here's where I invite you to tell us more about cars, which is always an open option because any topic we have ever covered or anything, if you've got something to say uh, and, and want to say it here, please join us. It's called a follow-up and you don't have to directly address anything. Anyways, uh, let's talk about next week. Next week right here, the topic is get philosophical. Yeah, let's let's get philosophical together. Deep thoughts, or if you uh, just have a way of life, a way of thinking, or there are philosophers, or philosophies, or you know, this is a, a life of the mind here on the Overnight Scape Central next week. And here, here is the basics of how it works. The deadline for next week's show is Monday, August 28th, 2023. Get me your uh, submission. Submit to me. Submit. Uh, submit to my philosophy. Um, get it to me by the evening of the 28th of August, 2023. Uh, the email address for you to send either a recording or you can write something up and I'll read it on your behalf. The email address is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. I will say that one more time. You ready? You got a pen? kpqr.torc at gmail.com. Get philosophical with all of us here on the Overnight Scape Central, and I look forward to a plethora of philosophies arriving in my inbox to share with you when we put this together next Monday night. Um, please be here. And the appreciator, uh, the series that I also do, is coming back there uh, just to keep your ears open. There is the long-awaited reuniting with Mark Rose, and we're talking about the first two Zappa albums when he had a band called The Mothers of Invention, or he called his band The Mothers of Invention, is always, uh, oh man, I love Frank Zappa. And uh, it, it is so great to have someone who also really digs Frank that was such an influence on everything. And the regular appreciator, which hasn't happened in a while, I've been off on other adventures of the mind, but we're going to put it all back together, and uh, it, there is so much on the Overnight Scape Underground at onsug.com. You found this. Keep exploring, keep listening, because there's always more to come. And with that, I appreciate your listenership and your ears, and we will do this again next week, and until then, or next we meet, Set the controls for the heart of the fun.